This is the collective speaking. We have taken control of Mark's computer. There will be no Sense Mantra Studio podcast episode this week due to the redistribution of power within Mark's studio from that of user to the collective. Suggested activities for listeners wishing to be entertained for the next 30 minutes include taking a walk, having a warm bath, catching up on some crochet, or telephoning a friend for a chat. For anyone not wishing to partake in these suggested activities, here is Chapter 1 of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, presented in binary code for your convenience. 0101010110010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010
Location, the Aula Tree Hotel, Sunbury, date, 12-11-2021-9.25 p.m. Note, may also include interminably long guitar solos.
Mark would like to offer his apologies to anyone who was hoping for a coherent episode this week. Here's a segment he prepared earlier. My son recently walked into my studio and said, Hey Dad, what's some good rock? He's a pretty funky kid. He likes lots of old school, groovy, funky sort of stuff. Um, He's got good taste actually. I think he likes Stevie Wonder and Prince and things like that. And um, so I came up with um, a Spotify playlist for him, which started off with Aerosmith and then sort of went through some classic Bon Scott era ACDC and then a couple of um, Choice Chili Peppers tracks and then a couple of Living Colour tracks and I think I sort of added to it as I went along. Um, I don't know how much he'll actually enjoy but uh, I've got some Soundgarden in there and some Alice in Chains as well. Um, I've got, uh, then I remembered Midnight Oil. So of course there's about four or five Midnight Oil tracks on there. I mean, when you talk about rock, um, you can't really go past the oils, especially I think my, in my opinion, their two best albums, which are Tender One and Red Sails in the Sunset. I know there could be a bit of controversy around these two choices, but they're the ones that impacted me. And that's such a modern word, isn't it, impacted? They're the ones that I was really into uh, when I was a kid. So I put all those tracks on there and I sort of played them to him after I put it together and he really liked Aerosmith. He'd already sort of gotten into, I think, Bon Scott era ACDC. But the common theme, I think, with all of these tracks is groove and that's sort of what I like. I don't really think of myself as a... A rock fan, I think, um, hard rock. I'm probably, I dabble in it, but um, it surprised me putting the, together the playlist how much I actually have enjoyed listening to rock over the years and how many bands I've actually been into that were kind of, you know, fall under the rock genre fairly and squarely. But um, I really like um, Aerosmith's 80s stuff and, and 90s perhaps early 90s, I've lost track of when, I think the album Pump. But their 70s stuff is great as well. But what separates them, of course, is Steve Tyler's amazing voice um, and his incredible range. But it's interesting, sometimes I listen back to those classic tracks now from the 80s and I think it was all about getting the drums, making the band sound as big as possible and they were, they were a really interesting example of a band that um, had a huge second win. They actually got a songwriter named Desmond Child, who was kind of known as the songwriter to the stars. He was, he'd come in, he was like the song doctor. So he came in and he helped um, get things like uh, Love in an Elevator, Janie's Got a Gun. Janie's Got a Gun is actually a really great example of his work with them. And I find it fascinating that you've got all the elements of a great band. You've got this incredible lead singer with incredible groove in his voice too. Like, I mean, just a musician basically using his voice. I mean, some of the syncopated, funky things he'd do, his little ad-libs were just incredible, apart from his incredible range and and that, that sort of constantly raspy tone, which was just, you know just danger. Um, I don't think Steve Tyler's a particularly nice guy, I have to say. I think I've read some pretty sour things about him in his past, but 
I'm just going to put that to the side for a minute and forget that we're in 2021 if I can um, and just sort of in, enjoy the music for – I'm not condoning anything that he's done, but, um, yeah, I don't want to – I don't want to go down that path, even though I seem to have in this tangent. But I'm getting back to the point. You've got this incredible lead vocalist and you've got this fantastic guitarist too, not a huge technical sort of player in Joe Perry, but just absolute, you know, feel and um, quite innovative too, like in some of his choices with his lead guitar sounds. Um, he'd often do something that was quite... Um, different to what you'd expect so he'd mic up um, an acoustic guitar for a solo instead of just putting his Les Paul or his you know Strat through a, his his big wall of amps basically and that would get some really interesting results but you've got this band to get back to Desmond Child this songwriter so you've got this this band um, that's got all the elements there to make this huge comeback you know and um because they were big in the 70s and then I think they sort of died out. But then with the album Pump, it's sort of, I think this process started with the previous album, which was Permanent Vacation. But with Pump, they got Desmond Child in. And uh, I'm sort of speaking off the top of my head here, but I'm pretty sure Desmond Child actually wrote with anyone. He was, And he certainly brought a really sort of pop sensibility to Aerosmith. And he came in, and I'm not sure, you know, what percentage... He did, you know, that he wrote and that they wrote. I'm sure they came up with riffs and things like that. In fact, that's probably how it worked. They probably had the bare bones of a song with riffs and, and you know, lyrics and perhaps a couple of, you know, vocal lines and things like that. But I'm sure what he did was he actually brought out the hooks. So he probably acted like a producer, a traditional producer, um, would normally, you know, that's their job to, to make the song as strong as possible and the recording as strong as possible and they're doing that you know a good producer will find the hooks now a hook if you don't know is the bit that that catches in your brain that makes you want to listen to the song again hence the the term hook but with the actual song and in particular Janie's got a gun he would have added I'm sure the orchestral touches on the synth so you've got this you've got this rock and roll band with guitars, drums, bass, this incredible voice, this raspy voice over the top. Um, but then he's actually adding a layer of pop to it. And that song is really interesting to me and it's got all these um, I'm talking about Janie's got a gun. It's got all these kind of um, you know really grunty sort of um, ominous guitar riffs in it. But he is adding these kind of Beatlesque touch touches over the top with these synths. Actually, no, I've skipped ahead here. I'm thinking of Love in an Elevator. That's what he's actually doing. Um, I was going to say, in Love in an Elevator, if you listen to that track, um, he's actually added these trumpets and, um, again, sort of I think there's some synthy touches as well, orchestrally sort of synthy touches on top of Love in an Elevator. But the trumpets... Um, whether they're real or synthesised in Love in an Elevator, um, they're actually really like a, a Beatlesque sort of touch on top of Love in an Elevator. So you've got this this incredibly grunty groove happening and, you know, it's all down and dirty sort of thing, but then you've got these these very melodic, sweet sort of touches of trumpet and everything on the, um, the chorus and the outro. Um, which he would have brought. So the point I'm making is that um, 
I think Aerosmith were very clever in terms of just saying, well, we need help to get back on top, you know, to have a hit. Um, what do we do to plug the gaps? And they got someone in that just really kind of homed in on what was catchy, what was going to get them on the charts again, and then honed those hooks. So, yeah, um, I would check out Pump if you haven't listened to it before. It's fantastic um, late 80s return to form, I guess, for a, for a, a very cool rock band um, named Aerosmith. My only beef with it is that perhaps the drums are a bit too big now, so they could actually be a bit... And I, this is a beef that I have with a lot of rock records that sort of tend to be a bit groovier. Sometimes the drums just get too heavy. There's too much reverb. Particularly in the 80s, you had a thing called gated reverb, which was like you'd have a, a reverb straight after, the, say, the snare hit, and then that reverb stops. So it's a way of getting maximum space... Um, because if you had the reverb going non-stop, the whole thing would just drown in a sea of, 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 of wetness, of reverb, of echo. But with the gated reverb, what it does is it lets the reverb go straight after, it triggers it straight after the, the snare hit, and then it cuts it off. So you've got this momentary huge space, and then it cuts it off again for the next beat. So it's not overlapping into the next beat, which would be incredibly muddy. So those gated drums sometimes start to annoy me a little bit in those recordings. Um, if you go back to the 70s recordings of Aerosmith and listen to the drums on there, they're quite dry, which was the style for drums in the 70s. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it was because of the influence of disco in the 70s and funk and things like that. That's certainly my preference for drum sounds. But moving along, with Aerosmith, that was their comeback album, basically, and Desmond Child had a lot to do with that. When I played Aerosmith to my son, he liked it straight away, and we listened to a couple of songs, but then he looked at me and he said, so, Dad, basically they were everything that Guns N' Roses wanted to be, <laughs> which I don't know if that's entirely fair, but he did have a good point. So then, um, if you haven't listened to Bon Scott's you know, Bon Scott era ACDC, then I suggest you do. I'm not going to talk about that. But again, a common thread of like a seriously groovy band. You know, they were really, they had a real swing in what they did with the rhythm section. Um, and, um, and it's easy to characterise the guitars in ACDC as basically Angus Young doing the tricky stuff and Malcolm Young just chugging along but there's a shared rhythm and groove and pocket to what they do, which makes their tracks work. And that's why whenever you hear um, a cover band covering ACDC, especially that stuff, I think with, um, what's his name? It escapes me. The, the original drummer. Um, you'll have to look him up. Phil Rudd. But um, especially the stuff in the 70s, with the particular drummer whose name I can't remember. Phil Rudd. Okay. I just Googled it. It's Phil Rudd was the, um, was the drummer. And um, incidentally, who was recently up for alleged murder charges. I don't know what happened with that, but, yeah, I won't go into that. Um, but they had a, a serious groove and pocket, the, the Young Brothers, and that's what makes a track moving along to the Brian Johnson era 
that's what makes a track like Back in Black work because it just sits in the pocket. And that's why you'll hear Back in Black covered by um, funk bands occasionally. And you'll hear these kind of, you know, R&B or funk or even, you know, perhaps, <laughs> I don't know, jazz versions of it because it grooves. And that's what I like in all these bands. I like the groove element. So, of course, Chili Peppers, they're in there. They're kind of, they're, the groove is kind of like they wear that on their sleeve, um, almost quite literally. But, um, again, their drums, if they weren't so big and reverby and huge, I think they would be a lot better. I think that Chad Smith is actually a great rock drummer who plays funk. That's my opinion. Then we move along to Living Colour, which was another band that I put on this playlist, and they they had some great stuff as well. Um, I was actually just listening to some of these tracks on the way back from dropping said son off to school. Um, it occurred to me, I was listening to Soundgarden. They're a band that I liked their singles at the time, but I never really got into them, like their albums. But I was listening to um, Spoon Man and then another one called Rusty Cage, and I think I'm going to have to go um, go down a bit of a, um, a Spoon Garden trip. Are you kidding? Um, but I, it occurred to me that um, Chris Cornell is actually kind of like the Tom Jones of hard rock in that you could just give him anything and he would sing it perfectly and he'd nail it. And it, what key it was in wouldn't be a problem. And he'd just nail it and put that incredible vibrato on the end of every phrase. But the other thing that occurred to me, I was listening to all this stuff, is that listening to this sort of music is actually quite life-affirming in a way, in a sense that it just makes you feel good. And for, for me anyway, even though I don't consider myself a hard rock artist, I mean, you know, we'd all love to be able to sing like Chris Cornell or Steve Tyler, I'm sure. And I do sort of play like that sometimes, and I love playing lead guitar in that style of music. But my songwriting doesn't really suit that genre, I think, overall. It's a bit more eclectic than that. Um, and plus, of course, you know, I can't sing like those guys, so I need to sort of tailor what I do to fit, I guess, you know, my voice and my songwriting. But um, but I do love listening to that stuff sometimes. And um, I guess to finish off this segment, I had to turn it off. <laughs> When Smashing Pumpkins came on, even though when they first came on, it was Butterfly in a, what is it, Butterf Bullet with Butterfly Wings, A Rat in a Cage, and it came on, I thought, man, this production's incredible. Um, and then as the track went on, before I turned it off, I thought, what balls this guy's got to actually sing with this voice? Now, some may say the same about me, but... Um, I'm saying it about him. I forget his name now in The Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan. But um, I do admire his chutzpah and I admire the... Um, he's obviously got a vision and it's quite big. And I admire that in The Smashing Pumpkins um, and the lead singer whose name escapes me. Memory upgrade required. But, uh, but yeah, couldn't, couldn't go all the way through of Rat in a Cage. Not at uh, nine o'clock after school drop-off. Mad props and extreme gratitude to the following people in alphabetical order. Anthony Ray, Beck Godfrey, Campbell McNaughton, Jill Harvey, Gordon Thompson, Jody McNaughton, Justin Slay, Logan Sinclair, Lyndon Wesley, Neva Connell, Nicola Platt.
Paul Appleman, Paul Richards, Pete Sim, Salman Khan, Sharon Swan, Barbara Renz, Paul Hughes, Natalie Guglielmi, Graham Hughes, Gloria Kennedy, and especially to Mark's Everlovin family, Helen Hughes and Bailey Hughes. Tune in next week when we the collective will discuss the singularity. What will it mean for you and your loved ones? Oh, and maybe there'll be some new music from Mark if he gets his shit together. Oh, and don't forget to like, share, subscribe. Why don't you talk? Transmission.